entitled The Foolishest Nonsense, which all the English teachers amongst you will recognize as um, terrible grammar. Uh, but that's okay. It's a direct quote from a gentleman by the name of George Butler, General Conference President, so I feel fully authorized to use bad grammar in this case. Um, George was talking, well, I'll just give you his quote. How's that? He said, we as a people have in many ways gotten into some of the foolishest nonsense in religious things and in fanatical ideas that I ever heard of among any people. Now, as General Conference President, that, this, is, this is not what we would generally classify as a faith-affirming statement. Uh, you know, usually we like to be a little more upbeat than that. Um, George was reflecting on two items at that point. He made that comment in 1904. He was in immediate context speaking about the uh, drift at the time of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg into pantheism, but his comments were, uh, shall I say, colored by the events which had transpired just a couple of years earlier in Indiana, which resulted in the unfortunate uh, departure of the entire conference um, staff of the, of, the, of the conference in one fell swoop. Look up fell sometime. You ever wonder what that means, fell swoop? I looked it up, I don't remember. But I did look it up once. But yeah, this is what happened. Um, <clears throat> The story starts off with a gentleman by the name of S.S. Davis. S.S. Davis was uh, an Adventist. He'd become, uh, he'd become an Adventist some few years earlier. Um, he uh, did a variety of Adventist-y type of things. He started off as just your average Joe church member, so to speak. He became a call porter, which is an excellent thing. If anybody has the opportunity to spend some time call portering, don't miss it. Okay? Summer programs. Can everybody understand summer programs around here? Okay. Big fan of summer call porter programs. Okay. Um, and from there he moved into um, you know, doing some lay preaching, and eventually he was asked, he was invited to Indiana to serve as a revivalist. That always makes me pause just a little bit. That's a crying shame. You'd need to have a revivalist. Yeah. Some positions just seem like an admission of, of, of defeat or something. Or, or, or you know, I mean, you know, somewhere along the line, we got we to get beyond the point where we have revivalists and, and, you know, just get around to doing things again. But, you know, whatever. So he was called to Indiana as a revivalist. And when he came there, he, uh, he hit the ground with all four feet and was running. And... Um, he, um, he was a, a, a dynamic individual, let's put it that way, okay? And he made, uh, from the very first notice, um, let's see, here's the first thing, um, it showed up in the review, he said, make sure I've got the right page here, da, 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 da. yes, okay, he wrote this. Evansville, Elnora, Salem, Linton, Farmersburg, Terrahate, and Bogstown. The 1st of December, in company with Brother Joseph Curry and his wife, and Brother John Hickey and his wife, I started on my work among the churches. As a rule, we found the churches in a cold, backslidden condition, and in many places, much divided and torn and scattered by the enemy. But generally, they were dissatisfied with their condition and desired a better experience. Well, that's good. You know, you paint the picture bad enough and everybody would like to have something better, I suppose. 
And in many places, nope, I'm sorry, wrong spot in here, and they desired a better experience, the Lord laid it on my heart to preach the Laodicean message. He gave power to the Word, and I never before saw such manifestations of the power of God in repentance as I've been permitted to witness in places mentioned above. In all these places, shouts of victory made the churches ring. Perfect union and love prevail. Sixty-seven persons were added to the believers. Praise the Lord for His goodness to the children of men. Just a short news blip that showed up in the review. Um, <coughs> There was a gentleman at the time by the name of uh, R.S. Donnell. S.S. Davis was the first guy. R.S. Donnell is the second guy we're going to try and keep track of here. Donnell was the Indiana Conference president. And he was a bit concerned. Uh, in fact, he's quoted by one individual. Now, one of the weaknesses we have with this is a lot of the historical accounts are being written up, you know, like 20, 30, 40 years later. So, you know, we're going to have to make some allowances for, for people's memories. But one of the accounts we have written, I think it was written in 1923, if I remember. So this is like, you know, 20 some years after the event. One gentleman remembered Donald as saying, I'm not going to have any such gang as Davis's, Hickey's, and Curry's running around straight up brush fires in my conference. Okay, well, we got a little bit of a conflict here. So Donald called them into um, the red carpet, so to speak, okay? And so Davis went down to Donald's um, office, wherever that happened to be, I don't know. And um, they spent about two hours together. And, and Davis, in his own account of it, surprised Donald. Because Donald said, what in the world are you doing? This is, uh, there's, there's, I'm, I'm hearing rumors of weirdness involved here. What are you doing? And Davis says that he told Donald, why, I, I'm simply trying to put into practice the principles that I found outlined in your series of articles that appeared in the Indiana Conference paper last year. <laughs> I've never read the articles. I really should. There was, a, there was a series of articles on tithing, and I have absolutely no idea what the what the connection might have been. But this was Davis's defense. He says, I'm, "I'm doing your thing." You know. Well, everyone who had knew anything about it said that when. Davis walked in, Donald was adamantly opposed. When Davis walked out, Donald was now on board. Complete turnaround. Don't have a real good account of all the details, but Donald became the biggest supporter and uh, promoter of, of Davis's work and, and program. Okay, that's interesting. Um, it proves one thing, and that is that people can change, and that's a good thing. Sometimes, sometimes it's a bad thing. Um, <clears throat> Okay, well, let's see. Uh, so Donald is now supporting the operation. Um, Davis reports, well, let's see, let's put it this way. The, 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 they got going in December of 1899 and then on through the spring of 1900. And for the summer of 1900, they appointed four camp meetings. Um, let's see if I can find you where the... Uh, uh, anybody from Indiana might recognize this. They, most of these names don't mean anything to me. Sullivan, Muncie, Kendallville, and Lafayette. Okay. Um, Davis, in his write-up at the end of the uh, summer season, mentioned that the manifestation of the Spirit of God was marked at all these meetings, but was not so fully felt at Muncie as at the others. Now that's important to bear in mind because the only good accounts that we have that give us any details whatsoever of anything are about the Muncie camp meeting. So, you know, for whatever it's worth, Muncie was not so um, fully developed, shall we say, or wasn't as marked as, as the other meetings. 
Davis, uh, a couple of quick things about Davis that were kind of intriguing. Um, Davis was, um, Davis had a daughter who had married a, uh, a Salvation Army captain by the name of Fuller. Now, the Salvation Army in those days rang more than little bells at Christmas time, evidently, you know. I don't have any personal recollection of this, but you get the, you know, you go back in the history of it, and maybe they still do this, I don't know, but this, this, the Salvation Army band was like a big thing, okay. Has anybody had any personal experience? Have you ever seen the Salvation Army band? Okay, they've gone extinct. There's no such thing as the Salvation Army band anymore, but 100 years ago there was. That's, that's all I can assume from this, okay. It was a well-known thing, and this was how the Salvation Army did their evangelism, okay. You know, Salvation Army is a, a church, right? Um, it's an interesting operation. They do a lot of good things. I've got nothing bad to say about them particularly. Um, but this is how they did their evangelism was with their band. Um, Davis's daughter had married this gentleman Fuller, and he was a Salvation Army captain, and she played in the band, and she, you know, had just a little bit more musical ability than I do, so she played the tambourine. That's, <laughs> that's about as far as I would go with my, you know, I can go like that too. Okay, that's about it, okay. Um, I, I, trust me, this, this will become interesting and important because you have to depend on me that I, I really have no musical expertise whatsoever, okay. That will become important later on. Um, Davis got to know this, this Salvation Army group. And he made an interesting comment one time, really fascinating, to um, another gentleman, um, I won't even bother you with his name, but he was you know, on the periphery of the story. And 20-some years later, he recalled the account. And he said, Davis told me once, he said, we have the truth. And the Salvation Army has the spirit. If we could have the spirit with the truth, we would do great things. Well, that's an interesting observation. Biblically, it has a few problems. <laughs> the spirit is the spirit of truth. Okay. I have some reservations about creating a dichotomy there, uh, just kind of splitting this out that way. That, that, that would concern me a little bit. Davis was no slouch. You read his writings, and he's a pretty sharp guy, actually. Um, now, I, you may or may not have picked up already, but I'll spoil the suspense. I end up disagreeing with, you know, several key points of Davis's work and teachings. That's okay. Um, but he was, he was a bright guy. He was intellectually, you know, astute. And uh, his writings demonstrate that. And one of the things that I do appreciate about Davis is that uh, having been a fairly recent convert to Adventism, he quickly identified what is, in fact, a very, very core issue, which Adventism, because of its unique uh, message and nature and eschatological uh, structures, has got to deal with. And we've been struggling with it ever since. It's, it's not entirely gone away, so you know, there's some relevance here yet. Davis said, you know, the big question that we've got to deal with, the thing that, that Adventism in particular, because of what we say on other issues, what we are going to have to wrestle with is what happens at the close of probation. He says, you know, no other church has to fight that issue, but we have to, because of other things that we have said, other positions that we have taken, our interpretation of revelation, etc., etc. He says, so what happens at the close of probation? Are they sinning, or are they not? Now, bear in mind, this is 1900. 
Okay. In 1888, some of you were here last night, we talked a bit about that. Um, Jones and Wagner, you know, kind of stirred things up just a bit, you know, in the Adventist church. 1892, uh, April 4, 1892, no, April 1, 1892, uh, Ellen White uh, writing said that the loud cry of the third angel's message has already begun in the proclamation of the righteousness of Christ, as presented by Jones and Wagner. This was an eschatological time, okay? And Davis had taken hold of that idea. And so he was saying, whoa, you know, if we think we're at the end of time, we're going to have to get serious about this. What's going to happen at the close of probation? It's an important issue, you know, especially if you're planning on being alive at that point. Okay? Um, and he came up with an interesting conclusion. And, and there have been quite a few different conclusions. And they're all worth looking at because they're all dealing with a, a, a pertinent issue. Okay? Davis came up with an interesting conclusion. He said, we can learn from Jesus how to live without sinning. Because that's what we can do. Okay? We must understand how Jesus lived without sinning. Because, he said, at the close of probation, when the mediator steps out of the sanctuary, we must live without sinning. Now, there are other people who have taken, you know, from every step of the way here. It's, it's kind of interesting if you're into open-mindedness, you know. Every step of the way, you've got numerous options, okay? And there are lots of people who have said, when the mediator steps out of the sanctuary, it really doesn't make any difference, okay? And, and of course, you'll be sinning. There are people who said that, okay? Davis did not. Davis said, when Christ steps out of the sanctuary, it's a big issue. You can't sin at that point, or you, you have no mediator. Yeah, it was his basic line of reasoning. And so he said, we've got to learn how to, how, how to, how to solve this problem. Yeah, got a problem. He said, we learn this from Jesus. And he went and he studied Christ's life, and he came up with his conclusions as to how Jesus had lived without sinning. That's a great idea. Okay? He came up with a conclusion that said that Jesus did not sin. And actually, I could give this to you as a direct quote. Um, if I find it quickly enough. He said, thus we see, da, 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 da. now sometimes I should get this all typed out into one, um, all, all on one simple page, but I always look out of books. He said, this is Davis, he said, now we know why Christ did not sin while he was here on earth. It was because he was God. That's, 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 it. that's it. And James told us that God cannot be tempted with evil, that then he, Jesus, was not in sinful flesh, neither did he have sinful tendencies in him. There we got it. Okay. This is, this is Davis' answer. And it's, you know, I, who am I to say that that answer wouldn't work? Uh, you know, sure. God doesn't sin. Jesus didn't sin. Jesus was God. That was his conclusion. And what he said there was that Jesus was effectively born in a, in a somewhat different humanity than you and I. Okay? And that was, that was the problem. But, David says there's good news. There's good news. Because that's not an insurmountable surmountable obstacle. Jesus was different from us. That's how he kept from sinning. But he's made provision whereby we can become like him and thus stop sinning. At the close of probation, or thereabouts, you know. Okay, so this is good. This is good. Sort of. Again, I you know I already have some reservations at this point, but that's okay. We'll deal with that later, perhaps. He's, he's at least being logical, sort of. At this point, 
in my humble opinion, the logic just went right out the window at this point, okay? Just, just trust me on this one. Uh, if you can spot the logic in this, you, you know, write me an email or something, okay? His next jump of, of logic or conclusion was, here's how you get rid of your sinful nature, okay? This is how you do it. <coughs> I should read this. I should read this directly here. <laughs> this is incredible. Um, okay, okay, let me, let me find the right one. <coughs> Sorry, you're using up my time like this. Ah, uh, okay. Getting there. I read through all this. I am apologetic. There we go. Okay. Here's how you get rid of your sinful nature. I don't know. Anybody else have a sinful nature? You have to deal with this? Okay. Good. Great. This is real practical advice if you want to accept this. You know, you can put it into practice. Go for it. I don't encourage it. Okay. The followers of this doctrine would gather in the cleared basement of the church and a large number of them would dance in a large circle, shouting and lifting up their hands. The children would be placed upon boxes or barrels and they too would shout and lift up their hands. In their church services, they would preach and shout and pray until someone in the congregation would fall unconscious in his seat. One or two men would be walking up and down the aisle watching for just this demonstration would lay hold of the person who had fallen, literally dragging him up the aisle and placing him on the rostrum. Then a number, perhaps a dozen or so, would gather about the prostrate form, some shouting, some singing, some praying, all at the same time. Finally, the individual would revive. And he was then counted among the faithful who had passed through the garden and consequently had had their sinful nature removed. So the answer is really quite simple. Okay? You scream, dance, shout, hyperventilate until you faint, boom, sinful nature is gone and everything's good. Okay? <laughs> now, if you spot the logic in that, like I say, please you know, send me that email because I, that has escaped me ever since I first read it. Um, this, this, wasn't, this wasn't a good thing and it, didn't, it wasn't a good fit for Adventism. Well, let's just face it, 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 it wasn't, yeah, it, it wasn't what we were into. Let's put it that way. Okay? Um, at the Muncie camp meeting, two representatives from the general conference were, they, they weren't sent, you know, to be the, the, the bad guy cop or anything, but elders Breed and Hassel were uh, at the Muncie camp meeting, they'd been scheduled, you know, before, and they kind of came walking onto the, uh, the campground, sort of like, oh, what's this? Um, they really, they were just, kind of just sort of naive when they landed, okay? A couple of the letters that we have, we have uh, two letters from Hetty Haskell, who was uh, Stephen Haskell's wife, and then we have two letters from Stephen Haskell himself. And, and Hetty especially, it's really interesting, her first letter, she says, I've never seen anything like this before. She was writing to Sarah McEntifer, who was Ellen White's um, nurse, assistant, multi-talented lady. Um, and Hetty Haskell says, I've never seen anything like this before. 
she always referred to her husband in the very formal Elder Haskell, but you know, um, today we'd say my husband, you know, but you know. She says, uh, you know, Elder Haskell says he had seen this spirit before, but not in the last 30 years. He said it's the same as that of old, blind Sammy, and then the writing is illegible. And I never have figured out who old, blind Sammy blank was. And then she says, perhaps this, perhaps this will mean something to Sister White. Okay, <laughs> so, fine. Um, that, was, that was written the day that they arrived on the campground. And then the next letter comes from about two days later, I think it is. And in the second letter, she's trying to explain things a little bit more. It's really kind of interesting because you read the letter, which, which I have in its entirety, and she goes three pages talking about other stuff, you know, just issues from the past. Oh, we forgot to send you this in our last letter, but you know, we'll send it now. And you know, this kind of stuff. Da 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 da. Seems like you were always, I mentioned one of those last night, they're always leaving things out of the mail. I don't know, that's just, that's not a problem in that office. But, um,. Um, so, so then at the end of this letter, she says, as she gets to the, the situation there on the campground, and she, the first thing she describes is, and it's funny because it just comes right out of the blue in the letter. She's talking about other, you know, totally unrelated stuff, and the new paragraph, last paragraph of the letter, and it says simply, they, and you have to assume that all of a sudden she's talking about the campground there, but they have a big drum, two tambourines, a big bass fiddle, two small fiddles, a flute, and two cornets, and an organ, and a few voices. They have Garden of Spices as a songbook, and they play dance tunes to sacred words. They have never used their own hymn books, except when elders breed or Haskell speak, and then they open and close with that hymn from our book. But all the other songs are from the other book. They shout, Amen, and praise the Lord, glory to God, just like a Salvation Army service. It is distressing to one's soul. The doctrines preached preached correspond to the rest. The poor sheep are truly confused. Okay, well, uh, allow me to give an unsolicited commercial plug for a great little uh, website called alibris.com, A-L-I-B-R-I-S.com. And uh, that's where I finally tracked down a copy of Garden of Spices. Um, it was only like five bucks, real steel. Um, and Again, my, my music abilities are zero. Um, I need somebody to sit down and play through this hymnal for me so I can hear what it sounds like. Um, it's an interesting interesting little little book. That's what they sang from. They didn't use the Adventist hymnal. It would have been Christ. No, not Christ. The song was before that. So it probably would have been hymns and tunes that they were using at that point. But anyhow. <laughs> Um, and so this was this was going on. Hetty also talks about how they um, they would call the people up to what they they termed the altar, which was like a little fence that they had. This was a camp meeting, so it was all under a tent. They had a little fence at the front, you know, and they would call the people up to the altar, and they would keep this um, music going at at a very high volume, as she described it. Um, and she said that the, the poor people were confused, and they were were very much confused. Elder Haskell then wrote a couple of, uh, of letters, and in his letters, his letters were written after the, uh, after the camp meeting was over, and he describes very similar terms to what his wife had said. That's good. They basically agreed. Um, and uh, uh, fills in a little more detail, one thing or another. One of the things that is interesting is that Haskell, Elder Haskell, 
picks up, so to speak, on the, the note that, that Hetty had left. She said the doctrines preached correspond to the rest. Well, so what were the doctrines? Okay. And this is, this is the practical value. I'll tell you in advance what the moral of the whole story is. Okay? The moral of the whole story is stick with the Bible. Don't be doing, you know, don't be doing weird stuff. Okay? It's, it's a very simple moral. Nothing complicated here today. Stick with the Bible and, and don't be, don't be, you know, interpreting it weirdly. Okay? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's right there in English, you know, and if you want to get you know, more enthusiastic about it, it's, it's still there in Greek and Hebrew, you know. Uh, but stick with it. Whatever language you want to read it in, stick with it, okay? Um, Haskell describes this in more detail. He said, he said that the, uh, the point of difference where they... Um, well, let's see. I'm going to read a little more context here. This, this is his comment. He said, this was the greatest mixture of fanaticism and the truth that I've ever seen. I would not claim that we managed it the best in everything, and yet I do not know where I made any mistake. Ever been frustrated like that? You know, I did my best. I don't know what I could have done better, but I wasn't preeminently successful. So maybe there was a better route, but I didn't figure it out. We tried to do the very best we could. Had they not have talked against us and misrepresented our position, there would have been no confusion with the people. But when we stated that we believed that Christ was born in fallen humanity, they would represent us as believing that Christ sinned. Well, that's not going to fly very well, you know. <laughs> I believe that Jesus sinned. No, that's not going to work, okay. And so that's what, that's what Donald and Davis were saying about Breed and Haskell. Is, These guys think Jesus was a sinner. How do you depend on a sinner to be your savior? Well, that's not going to work at all, see. Okay. <clears throat> They would represent us as believing that Christ sinned, notwithstanding the fact that we would state our position so clearly that it wouldn't seem as though no one could misunderstand us. Their point of theology in this particular respect seems to be this. They believe that Christ took Adam's nature before he fell. So he took humanity as it was in the Garden of Eden. And thus, Christ's humanity was holy, and this was the humanity which he had, which Christ had. And now they say the particular time has come for us to become holy in that same sense. And then we will have translation faith and never die. Okay. Um, fairly, fairly simple, straightforward theological difference here. And the point is, is simple, is that differences make differences. <laughs> Are you with me on that one? Okay. Differences of opinion, differences of interpretation, well, inevitably lead to differences in course of action. Um, the only way they don't is if you hold to a difference, but you aren't logical enough to do anything about it. Okay, and that's possible too. That's that's not a very commendable approach either. But anyhow, <clears throat> um, there were several. Um, ministers in the Indiana Conference, and, and it's, it's interesting to read the things that they had written. Um, I've got at least uh, I've got two pamphlets that were written up and independently published by ministers during this time period, trying to, you know, from their perspective, counteract the, the wrong influence of Davis and Donald's teaching at that point. And and they go through, and and they. One of them is fairly sweet. It is a bit combative, I have to say. Um, and and they go through and they say this is what their their doctrine or their approach is based on. But 
We have problems with this. Biblically, we have problems with it. What do you do with this verse? And 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 when they approached Donald and Davis about what do you do with these verses, they, uh, they really didn't get anywhere. And at that point, again, the, the logic, I would say, seemed to break down. And Donald and Davis were happier dealing only with the verses that seemed to support their opinion. You know, that's a, that's a, that's a common flaw. You know, I, I think maybe, maybe many of us have been guilty of that a time or two. And so my, the moral of my story applies probably to myself and maybe even one or two of you just as much. You know, stick with the Bible. And take the whole thing. Uh, it's the only it's the only safe route. It really is. Well, one thing that makes this of, of particular interest uh, to us on an ongoing basis is um, it's an interesting comment. Ellen White. Now this this all happened in the summer of 1900. Ellen White had just spent um, nine years, a little over nine years, in Australia. Um, when she went there, she actually never expected to come back to the United States. She was, you know, she was a little older, and she just figured, you know, I'm not going to do that again. This, you know, Pacific Ocean trip was kind of a, a, a bit of a stressor, okay, at her age and with that ship, I guess, you know. She said, Forget it, you know, I'll just stay here until I die, okay. Well, spring of 1900, the Lord started kind of tapping her on the shoulder and said, you know, effectively. Got stuff just coming up back in the states. You're gonna to have to go back and do it. You know, and she really drug her heels on that for a long time. She didn't want to, but the Lord kept, you know, kind of pressing the issue. Eventually, she, you know, tidied up everything in Australia and got on a big ship. You know, she landed uh, in California in uh, September of 1900. And when she got to the, you know, when she first got off the boat, basically, all these letters from the Haskells were waiting for her. Okay, because they had they knew she was coming, so they'd written to California instead of Australia, which would have been pointless at that time. Um, and so she read these letters, and she wrote back to Stephen Haskell, and she said an interesting thing. And this is this is a part of the uh, this is a in a fuller context, which won't go into all of it, but this is a, this is one of the factors that convinced her that she needed to go back to the states. Okay, she said this. She said the things you have described as taking place in Indiana. And the Lord has shown me it would take place just before the close of probation. Every uncouth thing will be demonstrated. There will be shouting with drums, music, and dancing. The scenes of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. You are a rational being. Maintain that status. <laughs> Maintain that status, okay? Your brain cells were given to you for a purpose. <laughs> there are lots of things you can do with them. Some of them are better than others. Okay? <laughs> um, and I'm not talking, you know, I'm sure I wouldn't exclude hard drugs and such things, okay? But, but maintain your rationality. It's an incredible gift. You know? The ability to think, to reason, to take responsibility for your own actions. We remove that from those who can't reason effectively. You ever notice that? Yeah. Someone who can't reason effectively, we quite accurately say, I don't think he's going to be able to maintain an adequate level of responsibility. 
And so we have a variety of means of constraint that we use <laughs> at varying levels of, of illogic, okay? Um, and eventually, I suppose, it ends up in the proverbial padded room. Um, God gave you your brain for a purpose. Preserve it. Preserve it, okay? Well, here was the problem. The senses of rational beings will become so confused that they cannot be trusted to make right decisions. And this is called the moving the Holy Spirit. That's an unfortunate application. <laughs> okay? That's, that's a, a really unfortunate application. The Holy Spirit never reveals itself in such methods, in such a bedlam of noise. This is an invention of Satan to cover up his ingenious methods for making of none effect the, I love this string of adjectives, know this. Satan is trying to make of none effect the pure, sincere, elevating, ennobling, sanctifying truth for this time. Okay, can we put any other qualifiers on that? You know, pure, ennobling, get it straight here, elevating, sincere, sanctifying truth. You know what truth is like? Truth is pure, ennobling, elevating, sanctifying what did I miss? Sincere. Okay, there we go. Five things. You'd think I could get five things straight, wouldn't you? Better have the worship of God blended with music. Excuse me. Better never have the worship of God blended with music than to use musical instruments to do the work which last January was represented to me would be brought into our camp meetings. Just the truth for this time needs nothing of this kind in its work of converting souls. A bedlam of noise shocks the senses and perverts that which, if conducted aright, might be a blessing. Okay? Your senses... Now this is focusing on the tools of the trade that were available to them at that time. Okay? Um, there are interesting studies that have been done on, on more technologically advanced tools of the trade. You know? Um, careful what you do with television. <laughs> you know? There are things there that will mess with your senses. Careful what they do with things that you might, you know, ingest, or inject, or inhale, or, you know, your mind, your senses, as a sacred treasure. Um, it perverts that which, if conducted right, might have been a blessing. The powers of satanic agencies blend with the din and noise to have a carnival. And this is termed the Holy Spirit's working. Last January, the Lord showed me that erroneous theories and methods would be brought into our camp meetings. I was instructed to say that at these demonstrations, it would be interesting to know what she, in detail what she means here. I was instructed to say that at these demonstrations, demons in the form of men are present, working with all the ingenuity that Satan can employ. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. You know, just simply that there is a demonic influence working through human beings. You know that there are actually supernatural apparitions. I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't know. But the point is 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 fairly simple. When you leave Scripture, you open a door. The devil works through whatever means. Now, 100, 104 years ago. In Muncie, Indiana, and presumably these other camp meetings, which had even more of the Spirit's influence. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Okay, um, this was a problem. Now, one more, one more final problem that I, I want to go on to from here. Ellen White said, when this was finally addressed, it, it, it kind of sat, you know, idle through the winter of 1900-1901, and was addressed at the General Conference session of 1901 in April of the, the following year. When she finally got around to addressing it and, and dealing with it 
head on, okay, all the principal actors in, uh, from Indiana were there at the conference meeting and they all accepted her reproof and others who provided just a, a biblical refutation of their doctrine and it ended. That's good. It ended. Okay. But Ellen White said something really interesting. She said that if this fanaticism had gone a step beyond where it was stopped, um, it would have opened the door for all manner of degradation and shameful practices. Okay. Now let me just fill in the detail for you very quickly because we still get this sort of stuff you know, running around through the Adventist grapevine now and then. You know, it comes in various forms and shapes. But here's here's the here's the thing in a in a nutshell. These guys believed that after they had successfully hyperventilated and passed out, that their sinful nature was gone. That therefore there were no internal temptations. Okay, I've got a few. You know, maybe you've run into one or two now yourself, now and then yourself. Okay, but they said I have no more internal temptations. That's a horrible thing to say. It'd be nice if it were true. But what it does is it, it's, it, it's, it's just the flip side logically of saying everything that I think and, and believe and feel is right. Now that would also be nice if it were true. <laughs> okay. um, there are, are you know, a number of things that I have thought and felt uh, in the course of my lifetime that I know are not right. Okay. But if I believe they are, I'm in a tremendously precarious position. I once had the opportunity of sitting down with a gentleman who was preaching a doctrine similar to this. Now he's since come out of it and I'm very happy to, to yeah, announce that salvation can be extended to the chief of sinners or whatever. But you know, um, but we, we were sitting there and he was telling me that unless I accepted his understanding that the only way for me to be a real Christian was to assert that by the grace of God I know I will never sin again. He was very clear on that. He said, Dave, unless you accept that doctrine you will be lost. And I looked at him and said, John, I'm really... Yeah, I should probably maintain anonymity here. Uh, John is just a very gentle name. Uh, <laughs> he said, unless, unless you... Or, or I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm quoting myself here. I said, you know, I really appreciate your concern for my soul, but allow me to make a prophecy of my own. I said, unless you leave that doctrine, you will commit adultery. Just kind of rocked back in his chair. Within a year, he had left the movement because the tendency, he had not committed to his all three, I'm happy to say, the tendency was spinning that way. You are defenseless if you think that you, in and of yourself, are righteous. Okay? Because it, it, it shouldn't be any great secret unless you know something that I don't that the devil can implant thoughts in your mind that are wrong. Okay? And these traditionally often lean towards sensuality. Okay? Yeah? And so if I decide that my next door neighbor, uh, you know, I really have a much greater spiritual affinity with his wife than I do with mine, and this is now a holy thought because I am pure and holy because I hyperventilated. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to make fun of these people, but it's so bizarre, it's ridiculous, okay? Um, if, if I assume that that's righteous, well then why not do a righteous thing? Okay? Um, these ideas are still being kicked around. History repeats itself. 
history must someday stop repeating itself. Okay? Time is a bad thing. Eternity is a good thing. <laughs> and we need to move from time to eternity. Okay? Um, try to learn a few lessons from history. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it holds out a beacon of encouragement to us that the Lord has preserved for us some accounts that can be a blessing to us. It's 11 o'clock. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you for the Sabbath day and we thank you for Scripture. We thank you for the certainty that you give us and for the lessons that you have recorded for us. Lord, we pray that you would grant us, at the very least, the wisdom to make new mistakes. If we must make a mistake, let us find a new one. In Jesus' name, amen.